You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. It's 35 Central African time, and at the time of the evening, where we join Anwar Kassam on his segment. He is the program called Driving with Anwar. Yes, Anwar, a brilliant half an hour with you on the politics, and here we get into your segment where you, you know, already drive us on to greater heights when it comes to the segment. Well, I'm looking at, uh, you know, they say South Africa. Uh, South Africa has been grey listed by the Financial Action Task Force. And, you know, whether you're grey listed or not grey listed, this country has already gone pear shaped. What's your thoughts on that? You know, I, I think we need to understand the concept of grey listing. Now, grey listing actually sets the benchmark for a lot of foreign investments in this country. And I think we're all aware that over 70% of all the companies in South Africa is owned by foreign countries, you know. So obviously, although the companies might be here, I remember the time of the looting and the writing where the country was unstable for a short period of time, a lot of people pulled out the investments, you know. So now, greatest thing has a set sense, a benchmark. Now, we are actually associated with places like Syria, uh, places like uh, Yemen, Mozambique, because they are not fully compliant. And when I say not fully compliant, it's more to do with money laundering, it's to do with corruption, you know. So what generally happens when a person has to invest in this country, there's so much of red tape he has to really go through to see if the money is legit, you know, because of all the money that's leaving this country and all the money that's not accounted for. Now, when we look at the grey listing aspect of it, we find that, you know, the, the company that's actually in charge of grey listing countries around the world, you know, the task team itself, has grey listed us because I think the corruption stems from the top. And they, obviously the whole world is oyster and the whole world realizes nobody is, you know, gets charged. There's no assets for feature whatsoever that takes place. So obviously it's a warning sign, in other words. For the rest of the world to realize, be very guarded if you want to invest in South Africa because of uh, the way, basically, they uh, do business when it comes to the financial sector. Obviously, our Minister of Finance had to defend to a certain point and said she will actually take swift action to try to combat all the reasoning that was found when it comes to grey listing. But obviously, if you look at state capture and all the other aspects that controls, you know, grey listing itself in South Africa, there's too many different diverse things they need to worry about. I mean, you don't want to lock up past presidents. You don't want to go and wipe up the whole cabinet or political party because corruption stems from the top. And I think we're all aware of it because it is shown to us on front pages all the time on even international news. But yet these people still occupy those posts when it comes to whatever, you know, uh, they so-called dictated to do in this country. So listing obviously is a negative effect on the South African economy and the people of South Africa. You know, uh, uh, there's something that I'd like to bring to your attention, and maybe you know about this. When you look at the U.S., uh, how it's playing this bravado, and it shows, uh, you know, its currency, uh, which is uh, virtually uh, America is in trillions and trillions of dollars of debts, and is just printing more and more money. And, uh, it's uh, you know, it's imploding from within. America's uh, infrastructure is uh, beyond repairs. If you look, they have to redo their bridges, they have to redo their railway lines, they have to do many other things. And uh, from within, the uh, people are, you know, they have the largest uh, population on earth when it comes to jail and uh, when it comes to uh, uh, killing in the, in the country. You know, the gun laws and all, you find that it has the most killings in the world and so forth. But this is not told to the world. 
Uh, what's your thoughts on America playing the cardboard gangster of the world, Anwar? Okay, the fact of the matter, one needs to look at the, uh, the, the presidents of the country. If we take uh, the, the last four presidents, and I, I leave Biden aside because he's neither here nor there. Now, if you look at Donald Trump, he's the only president amongst four. And the balance of the three was Obama, it was Bush, and it was Clinton. Between the three of them, they created 11 wars. Now, obviously, you need the funding for the 11 wars, and you're not going to take your actual... There comes a point in time where the economy can only give you an X amount of money. So they're you know, killing off people, killing off countries, trying to inhabit, trying to rule other countries. Same as the British, or if you look at uh, India over 400 years ago, the, the occupancy there. You know, if you look at British rule here in South Africa, we went through exactly the same turmoil. So... America has been, as you mentioned, a big bully. And obviously, they're going to get themselves in debt. If you look at uh, Tony Blair on the other side, if you look at uh, Britain, the, the milk fund, there's no more money left in, uh, in the pension fund. Why? Because all the money was utilized for funding wars. Now, if you look at South Africa, the money is utilized for corruption because they, they, they're actually packing their own pockets up. You know? So once again, you've got to look at the presence of the country at that period of time. And now you look at Biden. Biden, really, he, he doesn't have you know, all his eggs in one basket. I'll put it very, very vaguely or bluntly. You know? Reason being because he really does no good for America. You know, America always thought it was one of the superpowers of the world. And the moment you create debt, and right now America is in big debt with China, and that is the reason China Prime Minister actually mentioned the fact a few about a year ago. He said the first country we will take is America. And he made this bold statement about it because he owns a lot in America. He, I mean, if you look at all his countries, they own a lot in every country. And South Africa has, I mentioned, about 70% foreign country, you know. So once again, you know, it's disappointing to know that it's not the people of the country that really make, we might vote a president in power, but when it comes to the actual actions of the president, we, the people, have absolutely no control over that, uh, you know, and that is the reason you find a lot of people, a lot of unrest between the Republicans, uh, between the Democrats in uh, America, there's always a split between them because of the government's decisions that we made over a period of time. Yeah, and well, then I'm uh, very curious to know what's your views on uh, BRICS. Uh, I mean, will BRICS already, you know, change uh, the world uh, dynamics, the world economy, the world politics, and so forth? And will it usher in a uh, you know a new currency with a petrol dollar? Will say goodbye and will be buried for good and what? You know, the fact of the matter, you're talking about the change of currency and BRICS itself. You know. Um, out of the topic, if you look at the UN made by seven different nations itself, they only infiltrate countries that have some value, that will add value to their own country, and that is obviously America, their mother country, you know? So likewise, Vicks, I don't really see them making much of effort. If you look at Africa, if you look at Saddam Hussein, if you go back a little uh, in history itself, if you look at uh, Gaddafi, he wanted to change the currency, he had a whole billionaire, he had billions of dollars, and he had gold. And the infiltration, what happened? The gold disappeared because he wanted to come out with his own currency. And every single time a country wanted to actually come out with their own currency, and Africa could actually do that because we are self-reliant on ourselves. We don't need foreign countries. You know, it doesn't matter whether they sanction us or not because we have every resource in this country. Itself. But they, they refuse for it. Now BRICS wants to come up with a new currency. But you know what? It will only... Uh, I'm not really sure, but the fact of the matter is, it seems to me the Western world will always be dictated to the uh, underprivileged countries in the world.
Yeah, you got a point there, but uh, yeah, it will be, you know, heads are win, tails you lose. I mean, if they come in with the currency, the fact is they will be still dictating to us. And it will be the same, but a different uh, role plays, but the same scenario will go on. The same fiat money will hit the market and uh, we'll be still living in a meritricious world, Anwar, as uh, you know, we all know. Then uh, we get back to our motoring segment and we talk about 10 fun car facts uh, you probably didn't know. What are these uh, 10 fun car facts that we probably didn't know, Anwar? Here, the funny part is I actually read the article because it took me back to schooling days. I remember having this limousine, you know, the picture of this limousine. And, and I think it had 26 wheels, if I remember clearly. It had a small jacuzzi in the back, and it was a 1976 Cadillac uh, Eldorado that could actually seat 76 people in it. You know, a remarkable car, and that is actually noted one of the longest cars in the world. And most of these items that we are going to mention is actually in the Guinness Book of Records. And if you find uh, the, the 29th, the, the King of Brunei itself, he owes a car collection to the value of $2.9 billion, you know, and very few people actually have that. It's something like 7,000 cars. You know, he owns 500 Rolls Royces alone. These are Ferraris. I think it was about 40 F1s, and, you know, the list goes on, you know. Then we look at the largest car engine, and this was a good one. It was a 13.5-liter uh, engine that was actually developed in 1912, and it was stopped in 1918, uh, it was. So it was obviously the big of, uh, of the century, and it was actually, uh, if you take the, the VW Golf motor, basically, the one point three, it's actually quite a small motor. It was 10 times the size, and I think because of the era when it was developed, it was a remarkable motor of the time, because it actually did a top speed of 48 kilometers an hour. And now we're looking at electric uh, vehicles. I mean, everyone's a must, and everyone is very excited about the new, you know, save the planet type of thing, you know, let's go green. But what people need to realize, the first electric vehicle was actually invented in the 1800s itself, you know. And uh, I think the guy's name was Robert Anderson as such. And then if you move a little further, we have the Volvo. Yeah, we had a guy, he drove his Volvo from the time it was brand new, right until the demise of himself, which was the age of 77. You know, he drove, I think, a total of 4.8 million kilometers on the Volvo itself. And then we have, obviously, the most expensive car. I think a lot of our listeners is curious to know what's the most expensive car. And once again, something that I love is a Mercedes-Benz, the 350. And the SLR that actually sold for 2.6 billion in the Sotheby's auction, you know. And then we have the fastest, fastest engine swap, and this is interesting now, Shafar, because I mean I, I do motors all the time. It takes a couple of hours to remove a motor and a couple of hours to really put it back in, you know. And these guys, these five marine guys, get together and they worked at it until they got themselves the Guinness Book of Records because they did a complete engine swap in 42 seconds and they started the vehicle immediately after that. You know, wow. so remarkable. And I, I think um, the highest fine, I think that is all, I, I think we are, especially in South Africa, every corner you go, somebody wants to give up the fine, you know. And this was actually in Switzerland. The guy was driving once again a Mercedes SLK. He was doing 290 kilometers an hour. But his fine, for some reason, was 18.3 million rands in when you converted to our thing. So I think those are some of the most remarkable aspects that I remember, you know, when it came to that article. 
Tell you, very, uh, you know, I like the way you deliver it, and you got me excited uh, listening to you as well. Also, you know, they talk about the workshop association warns against the illegal street mechanics. I mean, you drive in Durban and you get to this corner and that corner, and especially when you're going down Mahatma Gandhi Boulevard, so there's quite a lot of uh, street mechanics there, and they fix your car there and then without any guarantee. Talk to us about it, Anwar. Okay, this year we are actually discussing a catch-22 situation because I come from a workshop background, you know. I don't really have the problem in the area I'm in, you know, but I know when we travel just across the bridge, not very far off, I think it's about three or four kilometers, there is a problem because wherever you travel, you find roadside mechanics. And what you will find, a lot of these roadside mechanics are foreigners. Now, you know, the sad and disappointing factor is because they work from the roadside, obviously the prices are very reasonable because they don't have a fixed dwelling as such. They don't have any overheads, you know, to consider. But also at the same time, you know, we, we should not actually cut them off completely in the sense of qualification because some of these guys are brilliant mechanics, you know. It's unfortunate they don't have the money or the, the you know, to actually set up a, a well-run uh, organization or a motor workshop, you know. And I think obviously you find that the, the, the SAP or the Metro, they go and cordon off these people every now and again and they confiscate all the customers' cars. And it's been done famously, you know, in quite a few areas. And unfortunately for the customer who actually takes his vehicle to these guys, you know, they have got to actually pay 1,700 rand to lease that vehicle from the town. That is their, uh, you know, side of the fight. You know, and obviously these roadside mechanics don't find all the you know, they don't own the car, the owners of the vehicles get fined. Not really those people, you know. But the government should actually look at the fact that maybe it's time he created small workshops for these guys or warehousing where they could actually, you know, uh, apply their trade in a, uh, in a reputable, good, decent manner, safe uh, manner, you know. So obviously we have the motor industry that will actually call these guys whatever they want to because by looking from the other point, they try to do an honest living, you know. And our government does not enrich in any way these poor people or these poor souls. If you go to Dubai, which I go to quite often, and they've got a thing called a motor city, and they have all this one-day and two-day workshop, it's actually a city. You know, Dubai has it, Alain has it, Abu Dhabi has it. It's called motor city. And if you had to say something like that in South Africa, where you can actually build up, because there should be some form of funding from overseas that comes into our country, and let these guys ply the trade in all, you know, established areas as such. So obviously it gives them an eye-opener. It gives the customer more uh, I would say confidence in them, you know, so warranties, guarantees, everything can be actually met uh, by these so-called people, you know, but just cutting them off completely, I think it's unfair because of the society we live in, you know, because, I mean, they're trying to do an honest living at the end of the day, Brother Shafar. You know, I'm really make a lot of good sense, and I like your empathy, your sympathy for them, and you say that everyone live. Uh, but then you get this, uh, you know, roadside, you go, and uh, people say, Hey, I want to get my aircon gas filled, and you go to these guys, they fill up your gas, and then sometimes they also do your window uh, tinting and so forth. I mean, uh, but these are not guaranteed jobs. I mean, how much can you save, Anwar, if you go, uh, you know, to the person that uh, does your aircon uh, gas filling and uh, filling, and also doing your window tinting and all that? Uh, I mean, you won't be saving that much because uh, the price is the price. I mean, you're still paying for labor and you're still paying for those, uh, you know, the film and all you're buying and the gas. Uh, maybe you're saving like a hundred bucks. 
I, I'm not really sure that it's a saving aspect that I look at because I know, for one, the two you actually mentioned, the window tinting and the aircon. I know there's a white gentleman down, way back down in Toti. He operates from under the tree, you know, and he charges me 250 rand to gas up a car. And the reason I support him, I actually driving, you know, with quite a few customers' cars on my own vehicles, and he does all my aircons, and he's been me for years. It's not to save the 50 rand because the normal price, I think, is 300 rand. It's the, the service that I get from this guy. He works from a, a panel van underneath the tree with shade cloth. You know, alhamdulillah, I've never had a problem with him. If I did have any problems, I went back. It was rectified immediately. Then if you go into window tinting, there's some black guys, gentlemen, you know. uh, Actually, his father used to do my tinting many, many years ago. And he's actually bought himself by a paint shop, by quite a good firm. And he's outside the paint shop, and, you know, he actually does quite a bit of work outside. And I pick him up, I bring him to my premises. He does a remarkable job. My Jeep Wrangler, my ladies, my FTT, all of that are him. And it's not a matter of saving money. I just feel encouraged for uh, you know, businesses to develop them, encourage them. You know, and I've never argued price. So I, for one, don't really do it for a price saving. I do it for encouragement because the service delivery I get from especially these two guys is remarkable. And I really speak in Shabbat, although they might be applying the trade illegally on the roadside, the fact of the matter is they're earning their money. And this is what I appreciate. And uh, then, uh, you know, you're telling me they're giving you service uh, uh, delivery. I mean, in this, uh, and they're giving you a 10. Uh, 10 out of 10 job, and uh, brilliant indeed, and lovely stories coming through uh, from you. On, uh, on well, when you talk about everything that's happening, one thing you cannot uh, uh, deny, that a Lamborghini turns everyone's heads. But a Lamborghini is uh, turning uh, 60 and plans to, uh, you know, uh, celebrate in style. What celebrations are they planning, uh, the Lamborghinis, uh, Anwar? You know, uh, Lamborghini itself, you know, a little history of Lamborghini, you know. It was actually a uh, start up by Fabrizio Lamborghini itself. And it was in May 6, 1963. And a bit of history about Lamborghini. I think we all know from the history, they actually used to make tractors. And the story goes that he bought a Ferrari and he wasn't happy. And he goes to Enzo Ferrari and he complains about the Ferrari. And instead of uh, Enzo Ferrari actually rectifying this, he insults Lamborghini and turned and told him, you know what? Stick to what you know best. You build tractors, stick to tractors. You know? And Lamborghini was very disappointed. He goes and he builds one of the best cars in the world that still has the most amount of value in comparison to Ferraris itself. You know? So with that small story, they're actually turning 60. And there's over 1,600 members worldwide which they're going to actually have a small celebration in each of these countries. You know, if you look at the UK, it's about 300 members. So, and they created a museum where Lamborghini actually started, you know, bringing up Lamborghini contrast and such. You know, so Alhamdulillah, they, they got a celebration that's great. And I, I think a lot of listeners uh, really don't know, but Lamborghini has changed his hands, you know, I think from the 80s right until the two, 2000s, you know, because Chrysler owned it initially, and now Volkswagen actually owns Lamborghini itself. So a remarkable vehicle, and yes, when it comes to celebration, I suppose, though the certain very few vehicles that he's branded, really they have no reason to advertise, and Lamborghini being one of the British uh, Ford. Yeah, and also uh, the next article yeah, you know, puts a smile on my dial yeah? uh, you know, how YouTube fix a, uh, you know, a rev happy Corolla. I know you, like you, you'll open up and you'll, uh, you'll look at uh, the, uh, what do you say, 
the, 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 the manual or you look at the, how, how to fix you can read a book and do, do it but uh, YouTube fixing up a, a rev uh, happy uh, Corolla talk to us about that Anwar you know quite a number of times talking about YouTube I go into YouTube because certain vehicles I deal with that is relatively old and some of them are relatively new you know, uh, although I got one of the latest diagnostic machines, certain vehicles don't pick up on the machine, you know, and when, especially when it becomes a mechanical fault, you know. So, like, when it comes to oxygen sensors, uh, the machines will pick up anything electronic, obviously, not a mechanical failure itself. But YouTube, one needs to be, you know, very, very careful, because if you go in and look into the videos, not everything might be related to your problem. Now, here we have a gentleman that has this problem with a three-cylinder car, and he doesn't have the money to fix it. So instead, of what he decides to do is actually go into YouTube and he finds, you know, what it might be the air screw and such, or the air control valve, you know. But to simplify everything, if he does go to a mechanic, you know, I mean, I, I, I myself, you know, advice is free. And I give a lot of advice over phones when it comes to mechanicals. People come up to me and go and fix your own car. I encourage people to do that because I, my belief is if you own a car, you've got to be, uh, you know, slightly mechanically inclined because you don't want to be stuck on the side of a road because it will burn fuels, you know, especially your family in the vehicle. So all that being said and done, very far, you know, I mean, fair enough, this guy, YouTube helping out. But if a person has an air leak on the vehicle, and you find that very, very often, you know, especially on the modern-day cars that we have, you find people have a fluctuation. And the easiest and simplest way to actually know exactly what it is, most of the time it's just a small air leak. And the simple way to find that out is to keep the car idling, and you'll notice the reserve will fluctuate. Take a liter of water and slowly pour it from your intake to all the air pipes around it. And when it sucks in that water, you'll actually hear the noise. And you actually found the culprit, maybe a broken hose or a loose clamp or maybe a hole in one of those pipes, you know. And then, yes, you do get the occasional valve body weight, needs, a throttle body weight needs to be taken out and cleaned, you know. But a lot of times, as I mentioned, in the modern cars, sometimes, you know, when you, uh, you take off the battery terminator for some reason, you find that you might have to recalibrate the throttle body because most of the vehicles are drive-by-wire. So you've got to be a little mechanically inclined, uh, inclined also when it comes to repairs of certain vehicles. But uh, once again, I will agree to what I initially said, you know, encourage people to actually go, you know, find out for themselves. Then if they're still in doubt, try it. You know, it doesn't really cost you money. And if you're still in doubt, you know, seek expert or professional help when it comes to your vehicle. Yeah, well said that word. And also when uh, we look at the, the Ford Cortina Paki, and, uh, you know, this article says, why the Ford Cortina Bucky mystique lives on. Definitely, it's a, you know, it's a mystique, but it's still living on. When you talk about the Ford uh, Cortina Bucky, there's always a nostalgia behind it, and well. Yes, most definitely. You know, I, I was an XR6 Interceptor person. I wasn't really a Ford person itself, but we used to race against those cars. I remember the... The police vehicles, way back here, about 30 years ago, they used to have the sapphires that was actually fitted with blue flame motors. It was called blue flame motors because it throws out blue flames every time they sped off, you know. So, but if we had to look at the Cortina Bucky, you have the Mark One and the Mark Two. I think we're all familiar, and I love the box shape of vehicles. I really do, and I still do, actually. You know, I, I love the, the, the streamline. I love the comfortability in it. Initially, in the 70s, when it was first manufactured, we found that we had a single seat in the front. 
But um, because of tax concessions and uh, and Ford was actually developed and made in this country, it was actually a lot of them were exported to other countries, you know. And initially it was a problem because everything was hand-built in the sense, or it had over, I think it was over 600 different seam wells on it, you know. So a lot of them were, you know, actually hand-done. And if you look at the leaf springs today, you don't really find leaf springs often. You'll find them uh, mostly in the LDVs, and you find them uh, basically on the trucks. But way back in the time, uh, if you look at 40 trucks or buckies, they came up with a five leaf spring in the back, you know, and it had a shock the after to compensate for the ruggedness. And if you look at it, at, at that period of time in 1974, if you look at the... I think to the 2,500 that came out, it was, I think, 3,300 rand. And if you look at the 1,500, it was something to the tune of about 2,300 rand. So, obviously, a lot has changed when it comes to the pricing of a brand new vehicle. But uh, Ford itself, I, I think what really put them on the map, I'm talking about yesteryear cars once again, when it comes to the Ford itself or the Ford V6, it has a beautiful car, the beautiful well. I remember my friend actually put six downdrafts on a V6 one day. And it took us, you know, 18 kilometers from Springer Beach to Durban. It took us over half a tank of petrol, but the car flew, without doubt, you know, to the XR6. And at that period of time, I mean, considering the era that it was developed in, you know, you could do 0 to 100 in 10.5 seconds, and you had a top end of 180 kilometers, which is quite remarkable for a vehicle at that ease of the well, I can tell you, you were remarkable this evening, Anwar, and, uh, you know, as you went on and on, you you sounded better and better, and I hope that spirit that you have and that oomph that you get, uh, it'll give you a speedy recovery. Perhaps your parting words before we let you go, Anwar. No, alhamdulillah, I spent a beautiful amount of time with you today, Bel Shafat. It seems like you were in my presence. I haven't really seen you visibly for quite a while. We speak uh, quite often on the phone. Well, inshallah, I think you owe me a visit. Not now, definitely not now. I'm not a very giving person when it comes to me being a little sick. I, I think I just got a head cold. I suffered it for many years, I, and it's something that will pass, inshallah. You know, but alhamdulillah, a very beautiful, pleasant show with you, Bel Shafat, as usual. And, you know, it is something, I, I think, when it comes to the presenter, you know, of the show that really makes it in the sense I'm so comfortable with you. You know, I've been on quite a few other talk shows, but somehow there's a restriction. It seems we both tend to read each other's mind and everything tends to flow, alhamdulillah, very, very beautifully. So inshallah, you know, the muhabbat and, you know, the, the peace that we have between us will inshallah take us very, very far, Brother Shafat. Naveen Anwar, my dua that Allah gives you a speedy recovery. And uh, you have a beautiful, lovely evening ahead. Uh, we'll talk soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yes, uh, uh, time for us to go for the Isha Zan. And inshallah, we will continue after that.